sermon text this morning comes from Acts 21, chapter 21. We're looking at verses 1 through 36 this morning. So you would turn there in your copy of God's Word, Acts chapter 21, verses 1 through 36. If you don't have uh, your copy of God's Word with you this morning, it's printed for you in the bulletin. Do not be alarmed. That giant wall of text, it'll go by quickly, I promise. Acts 21, verses 1 through 36. I'm about to read to you. It's God's Word. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera, and having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo, and having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city, and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and when we had greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day, on the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard this, and we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem, and Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manson of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you will teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have, told, they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. And when the seven days were almost completed, 
The Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with, all, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when they saw When they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. The mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him. Thus far, in God's holy, complete, perfect word, let's ask that he might bless the reading, the hearing, the teaching of it this morning. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come before you again, thankful that your word is true and powerful, thankful that your spirit works and is at work right now. And so we pray that that spirit be at work opening our eyes, unclogging our ears, would you soften our hearts so that your truth would be molding our hearts to look more like your son Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. So a new chapter, that's a phrase we say when someone graduates from high school or college, or when they get married. They move away, they buy a house, they're starting a new chapter in their life. And often we say this in a bittersweet moment, where we know it's a good thing that is happening, but it's going to still hurt a bit, because we're made to move forward. We're made to go on to the next chapter in our lives. After all, you wouldn't just read the same chapter of a book over and over and over again. Now, new chapters come with new challenges, and what we see in Acts 21 is a new chapter that Paul is going to face as he's turning his focus on ministry from having these freedoms to really go wherever he wants to go, say whatever he wants to say. Now he's starting to face real opposition and imprisonment. This is the end of his third missionary journey. So how does he face turning to a new chapter, by pressing on, by making peace or being peaceable, and looking on in irony to God's plans for his life. So that's where I want us to go this morning as we consider Paul turning the page, going to a new chapter, but still having the same mission. How does he do this? By pressing on peaceable irony. So let's start by looking at this idea of pressing on Uh, which we see continued from the previous chapter, chapter 20. And since that was a couple of weeks ago, let me just remind remind ourselves what happened in chapter 20. Paul has told the leaders of the Ephesian church that he has to go to Jerusalem. He must go. 
And he has to make it by Pentecost because he wants to present to the Jewish Christians this offering that he's been gathering for them. Pentecost was a big deal to be in Jerusalem. Remember, those Jewish Christians would have given up much of their their support structure, their, their, their social status, their economic security, job possibilities, friendships, family relationships, all for believing in Jesus as the Messiah that was promised to deliver Israel. And so Paul wants to bring these Jewish Christians a tangible sign that they are not alone, that they are being prayed for, that they are being helped by their brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Paul says, you remember he says in chapter 20, I don't know what lies ahead, but I do know by the Spirit that I'm going to face arrest, persecution. And so he leaves the men, and remember they're weeping, for it says they know that's going to be the last time that they see their brother, Paul, in this life. And so now we come to chapter 21, and we see Paul is making his way to Jerusalem, and he's doing so by these small journeys place to place sailing which is pretty common in that time you stay along the shorelines when the wind dies down you have a place to go to port finally we come to verse four they arrive in Tyre and as that cargo ship is unloading they have uh, a few days so he seeks out some disciples and through the spirit those disciples are telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem That's the second time since chapter 20 that we have the Spirit saying something about Paul's journey to Jerusalem. First it was told to Paul himself, now it's told to these disciples entire what will happen to Paul. And what's their reaction? Don't go. Death awaits. You cannot go because suffering is going to be there. It says he's with them for seven days. Can you imagine that uh, discussion for seven days? Paul, I really think you should reconsider. The Spirit says you're going to suffer. Yet Paul, he presses onward. I use that phrase, press onward, uh, because Paul uses it himself. If you have a Bible, go to Philippians chapter 3. I just want to look at a few of Paul's other texts this morning to understand a bit of why Paul is doing what he is doing. And for this section... Consider what he tells the Philippians in chapter 3, verses 13 and following. He says this, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, he says in verse 14, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying that he is continuing to press onwards in his ministry, even while, as he writes that in Philippians, he, even while he's in a Roman prison. Why? Because Jesus has called him to himself. He has made Paul his own, and now he is calling Paul to serve him. And so Paul serves him no matter the circumstances. He says, I press onward, thinking that for a moment. Think about that for a moment, pressing onward. Going forward, to forget what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. What lies ahead? Heaven. Being with Jesus. No longer having that thorn in the flesh that he talks about. He presses on. Keep Philippians 3 in mind, especially as we look at Paul engaging with another group in the house of Philip, uh, the evangelist. 
Philip, it's not the Apostle Philip, he's an evangelist, and he's mentioned a few times earlier in the book of Acts, and now he has settled down, he has started a family, and from what we know, he is part of a, a, a um, connected and strong church plant, probably planted by Paul. And it's in the house of Philip that we see not one, but two more acts of prophesying around Paul. First, Philip's four daughters. Nothing seems particularly alarming from them, but then we get a few days later to a man named Agabus. A man named Agabus. Look at how he is described in verse 10. A prophet who came down from Judea. Now that bit of information, it might be relevant, because right now, Philip and Paul... They're in Gentile territory. They were in Gen- Paul was in Gentile territory. They don't know what's going on. They don't have a pulse on the health of the local Christian church in Jerusalem. But Agabus, who lives in Judea, he does know. And what does Agabus do and say? Something very odd. Look at verse 11. Coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hand of the Gentiles. That sounds, that sounds a little bizarre, doesn't it? Let's try to figure out what Agabus is doing. First, he takes Paul's belt. Now, we think of a belt as something that keeps your pants up, right? It fits snugly around the waist. That's not exactly what a belt would be like in the ancient Near East. They didn't have pants, This belt word, it refers to a long piece of cloth that you would use to wrap up your money and other small things. It's like like the man purse. It's the ancient Near Eastern man purse. And and because it has this considerable length in order to handle money and all your accessories, it could certainly be unwound and used as Agabus does. Now, what about what Agabus prophesies? How is that comforting? Well, it's not to Philip and the others in that congregation, even for Luke. Remember, Luke's writing the book of Acts. Notice what he says in verse 12. We heard this, and the people urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Paul, they are going to bind you up and arrest you. Paul, I, one of your best friends, Luke, don't want you to go. Don't you see what has been prophesied? Not just here, but earlier. And you yourself said, how can you press on? How can you go forward? Now their reaction, it is out of a deep love for their friend. And it is, please don't do this. We don't want to lose you. But for Paul, there's no other, there's no other option. He must press on. And he is doing so not out of this brash arrogance like, you know what, I'm going to show the Holy Spirit uh, how wrong he is. No, he is going because this is exactly what he has been called to do. In fact, if you look at Acts chapter 9, if you turn there, look at verses 15 and 16, and you see what God says to Ananias. Ananias is the man who is called by God to go and seek out Paul, Paul, the one who had been murdering all these Christians. This is what he says to Ananias as you go and seek out Paul. And he says, The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. You see? 
For Paul, he presses on for the sake of living out his calling to serve the Lord, but he does this knowing it is what God has called him to do. He expects it. He presses on. What else do we see about Paul? That he presses on and his friends and brothers and sisters in Christ being distressed about it. As he presses on, it makes, him very, it, makes it hard on him. Look at verse 13. What does he say? Why are you doing this? Weeping and breaking my heart. Just highlights what we saw two weeks ago. These deep fellowship the deep fellowship Paul has with these churches. There's real relationship there. So as we think about how difficult this was for Paul and his first friends, let's just think about some application, okay? And what we see is this, that the concept of sacrifice is often lost on us. Often we don't consider sacrifice really an option for ourselves in the Christian life, in the church, let alone for our children. And so as we, as we consider what God is calling us to do in our lives, <clears throat> as, we, as we consider that, we often put the idea of suffering as the farthest thing possible for us. We are creatures of comfort. And yet, what does Jesus do? Does he suffer? And he's called, he tells us to follow him. What does he call Paul to do in his ministry? Part of it includes suffering. Not all of it, but part of it includes suffering. And so just that there, what, what does Jesus endure? What does Paul endure? And he calls us to follow him. Paul will say, brothers, be imitators of me. It makes us consider this. Maybe suffering can be good for us. Maybe suffering can push us to places where we have to be dependent on not our own success or comfort. Maybe we need to suffer a little bit and go outside of our comfort zones. Do we not see that? That to live with a heart for the kingdom of God, it does require sacrifice. It requires giving up of our comfort and embracing suffering. That's maybe part of God's calling for our lives. And so here's, here's a question to see if, if you really want this. Are you willing to go and live in a third world country? Are you willing to let your child go and live in a third world country for the next 10 years? Or to live in an inner city to reach the most dangerous areas for Jesus? Are you willing to do that? I'm not. If I'm honest with you, that terrifies me. What's that say about me? What's that say about us? And yet, we're called to experience suffering. Second thing we can make up is that we can make all sorts of arguments for different options in our lives, in the lives of our friends and families. But we can't downplay the call of God and the Holy Spirit and what it places upon somebody. That sounds really abstract, doesn't it? We can't deny that the Spirit calls some people to do certain things. We can't deny it and say, don't do that. How do I know if God is calling someone or myself to go do something? Well, consider this. What are the ways in which the Lord has prepared someone for a task? 
God hasn't called me to be a professional marathon runner. You might not know this, but I hate running. Uh, but God hasn't called me to be a professional marathon runner because I hate running and my knees are falling apart. But what about the person who grew up loving to run, who has that Eric Little, I, was, I feel God's presence. That's weird. I don't know how you can feel God's presence when you run. I feel pain. But you're built to run like a gazelle, and you even have earned scholarships. You've earned sponsorships in running. That person might have a calling to be a long-distance runner professionally. Do you see how God confirms the call in our lives in the next steps? Do you see how we can look back and see how God is at work, and we can say, you know what, God really has prepared you for this. When we can look back and objectively say, we're going to miss you, but I can see how the Lord has called you to this. Do we recognize that in our lives? Because that's what we see here. Notice how they leave things. After saying, Paul, don't go. Luke says this. Paul, don't go. They leave with this. Let the will of the Lord be done. They realize what God has called Paul to do. They know he is called to preach the risen Jesus as King and Messiah and Lord, not just to the Gentiles, but even to the Jews in Jerusalem where he will face arrest. No, it doesn't make it any easier, but they know that if Paul wants to follow the call to serve the Lord, it is what he must do. And so Paul, he presses on in the midst of tears and goodbyes. He presses on and he makes it to Jerusalem where he finds himself in a bit of a predicament where he decides he has to be peaceable. He has to seek peace. So let's look there for a minute, verses 17 through 26. The first thing he does is visit the church in Jerusalem, where James appears to be one of the disciples, one of the elders, and he tells James and those uh, around what has been going on in his ministry with the Gentiles. Look at verse 19. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God has done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And James and those present rejoice and they give thanks to God. I just want to point out, Paul's not saying, look what I have done. He says, look what God has done. Look what God has done. What else happens? Well, James tells Paul about the way the church in Jerusalem has been growing. He's ecstatic. Look at verse 20. How many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed? But James doesn't stop there. He continues on, verses 20 through 22. He says, they're all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. I want you to look at that phrase, zealous for the law. Paul hears that, you, you know that his ears are just perking up. Do you remember how Paul described himself how devoted he was to the law as a Pharisee. You know what he says of himself in Philippians? I was zealous for the law. Zealous in his observance and practice that went beyond what the scriptures taught. It was that same zealousness that caused him to murder Christians. These Jewish Christians that are being converted say, guess what? God has been working in our lives too. Look, brother, how many believe. And all of them are zealous for the law. What does that look like? Well, we see here that they are still following rituals in the temple. 
they are engaging with the rabbinical writings still in some way that have these extra imposed laws. And as concerned as Paul was upon hearing that they're still zealous for the old rabbinical law, James is the one who voices concern. On behalf of the Jewish Christians, his concern is what? Verse 21, we heard that you've been teaching all the Jewish converts to forsake the old ways. Forsake. That word forsake in the Greek is the word from which we get apostasy. Paul, you're calling people to defect from Moses. And in rabbinical writings, it says that the person who does this, he has no place in the world to come. We should ask, though, is this, is this really what Paul's been doing? Has he been telling people to forsake Moses? No. In fact, when he tells the Gentiles that they, must, that they do not have to be circumcised to become a Christian and part of God's family, to become part of the covenant community, what does he have Timothy do? He circumcises Timothy for the sake of the Jewish believers in Acts 16. What does he preach? That Jesus is the Messiah that the Jews are waiting for. That Jesus comes and fulfills the law and takes the punishment reserved for us so that we might be clothed in his righteousness. So we don't have to go through these purifying rituals anymore because all those did was show us of our need of a Redeemer. And guess what, Paul proclaims? That Redeemer has come and his name is Jesus. He's not forsaking Moses. He's showing them how Jesus has fulfilled what Moses was pointing to. Y'all, the gospel message has been misrepresented to James. It's been misrepresented to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, but the fear they have is still real. Because when the Jews hear that Paul is back, they know they're going to search for him and arrest him. And so how does Paul handle being misrepresented? Look what James suggests to do in verses 23 and 24. He says, we have these four men who are under a vow. They're still under the, the zealousness for the law. He says, take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. Two reasons Paul would agree to do this. First, as someone who has been in Gentile territory for a period of time, there were cleanliness laws for the temple, which we see in stuff like Numbers 19, that you would need to undergo a seven-day purification ritual in order to participate in temple worship. Okay. But also, why would Paul do that? We'll get to that in just a second. But we also see here in the mind of James, this provides something for James and other Jewish Christians to point to, to those Jewish people, and saying, hey, he's not telling people to forsake Moses. Look, he's, he's there. It makes no sense. Why would he do this, say this, and do that? So James is saying to Paul, go with these men, pay their expenses, and you yourself go through the purifying ritual. That way we can say, look, Paul still honors the Jewish customs. He even paid for these men. He is for, not against, these things. And Paul goes along. Why would Paul do that? Turn to 1 Corinthians 9. It's, it's a passage we were at a couple of weeks ago, and it's a confession. But Paul tells us why he would put up with this. 1 Corinthians 9, look at verses 19 through 23. He says, I'm starting in verse 19, For though I am free from all, 
I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. That's why he's there. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. Why is Paul doing this? He does it for the sake of the gospel, that he might share with Jews and Greeks the blessings of knowing the true Messiah, the one the Jews are still waiting for, Jesus. Why is he doing this? He says it a bunch. To win them. To win them. You know how we say, you know, hey, numbers don't matter? It's okay, numbers don't matter. To Paul, they do. He wants to win people. He wants people to convert to seeing Jesus as their Lord. And he's even willing to give up his rights humble himself, humiliate himself. Go through a purification process for seven days when he knows that he's been fully cleansed by the blood of Jesus. He will do that for the sake of making peace with brothers and sisters in Christ and being able to win more. Here's a question for us. Are we willing to do that? To give up our rights for the sake of winning souls for Christ. We love our rights, don't we? Would you give up some of those for the sake of the kingdom? F.F. Bruce says it like this, a truly emancipated spirit like Paul's is not in bondage to its own emancipation. And another theologian says it like this, liberty is a great thing, but sometimes the expression of liberty can be counterproductive for the gospel. This isn't the first time Paul is misrepresented, and it won't be the last. And you know what? Misrepresentation still happens even today. Just think about pop culture for a moment. How does it misrepresent Christians? How does it portray us? We're backwards. We're dumb. We're hateful. We're angry. How do you act peaceably with that? You know what the real tragedy is? Is we see that just as Paul was misrepresented by Jewish Christians, by believers, that's still happening today. Even in evangelicalism, even in our own Reformed tradition, we say they are compromising. Those people are going down a slippery slope. Those people are holding on to a heritage and a tradition instead of the message of the gospel. There's all types of misrepresentation. And you know what that does? It destroys the church. It leads people to mistrust one another within and from the outside. It causes factions and those factions to have superiority complexes. Y'all, I want us to see all those things. It's Satan at work trying to cause rifts and division in the church. You know that Jesus addresses this in Mark 3? If a kingdom is divided against itself, it can't stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Are we able to seek peace? 
to win souls. So Paul seeks to maintain peace, seek peace, and everything works out great, right? Not quite. On the last day of this ritual cleansing, Paul is spotted by men from Asia. What was Paul doing in Asia? Oh yeah, he was preaching to the Gentiles in Ephesus. Do you remember what happened in Acts chapter 19 in Ephesus? A little bit of a riot because of Christianity. Now it was because the silversmiths, the tradesmen were losing revenue from their idol sales. But nonetheless, a riot happened, and Paul had to get out quick. And so these Jews from Asia, they've seen Paul with a person they recognize from Ephesus, and they believe Paul has brought this man, Trophimus, into the prohibited area of the temple, thereby defiling it. Now they had an opportunity, they had a place they could go in the temple, the outer area. They said, no, he's in the, he's in the real area of the temple. The Jewish historian Josephus writes that even in Roman cities, if a Roman citizen entered into the temple, he could be found punishable to death for defiling the Jewish place of worship. So this is a big deal. Look at verses 27 and 28 for a moment. They stirred up the crowd, they laid hands on him, and it grew to such a fever pitch by saying in verse 28 that this man had been teaching to everyone, everywhere, against the people, that is the Jews, teaching against the people, the law, in this place, that is, the temple. See what they're saying? This man is teaching against Jewish belief, Jewish society, Jewish culture, Jewish heritage. And look, he is even here now purposely defiling this place and us. Off with his head. That's essentially what they say. Do you see the irony here? That in an attempt to show respect for the people and the law and the temple, Paul has gone through a seven-day ritual process so that the temple area would not be defiled if he were to worship there. And here he is being falsely accused of bringing in an outsider to defile the temple and the people and the law. They want a death sentence for defiling the temple when he's in the act of purification so that he would not defile the temple. It doesn't matter what the facts are, though. The crowd is already in an uproar. Just look at verses 30 and 31. The whole city was stirred up, and the people ran together, and they seized Paul, and they dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they're seeking to kill him, word comes to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Look at the end of verse 31. It leads to another bit of irony. That Paul's safety comes at the hands of a Roman guard. The Roman guard that had killed so many Christians. Word comes to the tribune of the cohort because their headquarters, this is again according to Josephus, their headquarters would be attached to the wall of the outer temple court. Very convenient. This tribune we will find out in a couple of chapters is named Claudius. He'll be a key person in the story of Paul's trip to Rome. Ironic how they brought, brought together. And so this great riot that Claudius himself, it's so great that Claudius has to grab leaders and men and centurions. Do you know how many people a centurion is usually in chart, is, is a part of? A hundred. There might be 200 men rushing down to see what is going on. And when they are spotted, 
the Jews stopped beating Paul. They didn't kill him. And what does Claudius do? First of all, he arrests Paul. He binds him in two chains. Just like Agabus said. Each chain would be attached to a soldier. And, he, and, and so Claudius then asks, what did he do? Isn't that nice? I'm going to arrest you. Okay, what did he do? So violent was the outburst when Claudius asks that he says, I have to take this man away. I have to protect him and then figure out what is going on. And so they actually have to carry Paul into the confines of the barracks that are right next to the temple. And Claudius hears chants that might sound very familiar. Remember when Jesus is wrongfully imprisoned? And he said, who do you want me to release? What do they say? Give us Barabbas. Now Jesus, Jerusalem has rejected Jesus, Peter, John, Stephen, and now Paul. They've rejected the gospel. Paul had to be arrested and put into chains and then carried by the Romans to escape death. He was saved by going to prison. It is a bit ironic, but it is totally expected. Three times before Paul makes it to Jerusalem, what did the Spirit say to Paul and to others? He would be bound. He would be beaten. And yet, knowing this was going to happen, he pressed on because he must go to Jerusalem and then to Rome. And how would he get to Rome? Being arrested by Romans might help. So let's close then by making some application briefly. And that is that God is at work even in the messy, even in the ironic ways. Who would have thought that the way Paul can finally make it to Rome after all these years would be through being arrested? Who would draw it up like that? Who would have thought that God was at work in bringing about the redemption of the world by sending his son to live as a lowly Jewish man who was beaten and spit upon? It's the same God whose kingdom is ironic, isn't it? That to gain your life, you must lose it. To admit that you're lost without hope is the way you can be truly found. That God works in the unexpected and even in the downright suffering of our lives to bring about His glorious kingdom. May we recognize and trust that even as we might suffer and press on, even in the times we are called to seek peace by giving up something of ourselves for His sake even when we face struggles and know we must press on. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that shows us the need to press on in this life, even through suffering. That shows us we can trust you, that you're at work, even when we're called to suffer and give of ourselves to seek peace and make peace so that we might win souls for you. Lord, forgive us for the ways we don't want to do that. Convict us for the ways we reject giving up for your kingdom's sake. Let us see that you're at work, even in the messy. For you work in ironic ways sometimes. Let us not forget that. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.